our study of In the Midst. Let's see, there we go. We're working. Uh, and I wanted to share tonight, this is my last one. So it's kind of bittersweet for me. It's been a sweet study for me to, to study that phrase in the midst in Scripture. And honestly, tonight was the one that I wanted to teach the most. So I've held it off until last, uh, the best for last, I hope. I don't know if you'll say that, but I have enjoyed uh, this study and holding this, this one to the last. You know, I remember a trip, the first trip that I ever made to Ukraine. Uh, it was 2004, and I went in May and made a survey trip to see if we could help a local church there, a Ukrainian church, to start a deaf ministry. And uh, determined we determined that we could help. So I was to return, uh, Terry and I, and our son Patrick and Jay Bixler were going to head back uh, in February to do a two-week, teach sign language for two weeks and start a deaf ministry. There was only one little problem. I didn't know Ukrainian sign language. So I don't know why I bite off these things that I cannot uh, actually do, but I, God touched my heart, so I was just foolish enough. Anyway, in about November, December-ish, I got a phone call from the man who uh, was over the church we were going to help to start the deaf ministry in. And he said, uh, we've, had to, we've had to dismiss the pastor who was here uh, pastoring the church. Is there any chance you could come six weeks earlier and be the interim pastor for six weeks before your family comes over? Well, I had a number of challenges with that. I, For one, I had never been separated from Terry for more than a weekend. At that point, I think we'd been married about 25 years, and I had never been away from her for more than two days at a time, uh, and I didn't think I could handle that. And so I went to all of I went to her and I said, "Honey, what do you think?" And she said, "I think you should go." So I went to our oldest daughter, Jamie. I said, "Jamie, what do you think?" She said, "Dad, I think you should go." I went to Monica. Monica, do you, what do you think? I think you should go. I went to Patrick. I think you should go. I went to Amanda, our last one. She said, Dad, I don't want you to go. I said, you're my favorite child. <laughs> the rest of these children are out of the will. You're getting everything. <laughs> but I knew that the Lord wanted me to go. And, and against my own personal, with, with my own apprehension and fear, and honestly, tremendous fear, I, I ended up being the only American in this ministry for those six weeks. I, was, I did not know any Ukrainian language. I was totally dependent on translators to help me and I never will forget coming through the the glass doors at the Borispol airport which I think has been bombed at this point but coming through those glass doors and I see a young man coming toward me a very thin young man uh, dressed very professionally uh, obviously Ukrainian and he came into up to me and he introduced himself to me as Sergey and that's the man you see on the in the left corner of the screen with his wife, Nellie. Uh, her name's not really Nellie, but I can't say her name in Ukrainian, so she said, don't try to say my name, you butcher it. Just call me Nellie. And so uh, these folks are lose your total Ukraine tonight. And they might be hunkered down in their basement uh, with air raids going off around them. I praise the Lord. I had a chance to speak with Sergey for about 20 minutes today on uh, through video able to see that he's doing okay, and, and uh, do, do pray for the people of Ukraine. I didn't put this up here for that purpose, but I wanted to, I wanted to tell you that during those six weeks, Sergei was the man who stood in my midst. He came to me where I was and where I really needed help. For example, uh, 
I didn't know Ukrainian sign language, but I'm there to teach sign language. And Sergei said to me at one point, how are you going to do that? I said, I have no earthly idea. He said, well, how did you learn sign language in America? I said, I learned it from deaf people. He said, we have a deaf school right over here. So he and I get in the car, and we go over to the deaf school. We march in. I meet the administrator. They see an American coming, and they think, here comes money, because we're Americans. And uh, so they welcome me in, and the administrator asks what I would like. I said, I'd like to learn from your students uh, Ukrainian sign language. And, she sa and I told her why I was there. And she said, you're welcome to come. Uh, we have So the kids were done classes at 1230, and they'd have lunch. And then Sergey and I would show up Monday through Thursday. We did this for probably four weeks, five weeks straight in a row. Monday through Thursday, we'd show up with two legal yellow pads. And uh, I would tell Sergey the word I wanted to know in sign language. He would write it in Ukrainian on the pad. He would show it to the four students who were there with me. They would argue with each other which deaf do because they can't agree on signs. And then they would show me a sign. And then I would literally, physically write down a description for me to remember how to sign that word. I would go home at nights and I would type out my notes so that I could put together a booklet for the church that we were going to teach in. And with the help of Sergei, my man in the midst, I was able, we were able, Terry came, and we were able to teach sign language and by the way, God opened the door for us to go back to that school. They called it uh, school number 29 in Shatoma. And I got the chance to preach the gospel to the entire student body of that school, including all their teachers, the maintenance people, everybody came. And we, we were in a packed, filled room. Uh, Terry had taught the, our sign language class at the church, the song, He's All I Need, He's All I Need in Ukrainian, the sign. And they, sung the, they signed the song for the deaf students, and the deaf students were amazed. So the picture you see in the upper right-hand corner is the deaf school during that chapel time. Uh, Jay is across the room, Deb. If you can see that striped yellow and blue shirt over across the room on the other side, that's Jay. And uh, this, this, out of that was born a ministry to do deaf camps in Ukraine. Andrew Myers went with us to deaf camp uh, later on. The first deaf camp, the kids you see in the center there. And anyway, I say that all because God gave me a man uh, named Sergey, who had no idea who I was or what I was doing there. <clears throat> but God put the right man in the right place at the right time. And you know, God did that for us um, as well. I'm not there. There we go. I didn't push the button hard enough. God sent a man for us. Amen. The angel appeared, Gabriel. Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, and he told her that the Holy Ghost should come upon her, and that the power of the highest would overshadow her. And therefore, he said also, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. What a great day that was for you and I. That day, we weren't there obviously, but the day that Jesus Christ came into this world. Paul, Paul wrote it this way. Paul said this in, in Galatians chapter 4, and I love these verses. It, he says in verse uh, 4 of Galatians 4, he said, But when the fullness of time was come. Don't you like that? Hey, can I tell you something? God never misses an appointment. Every time, God shows up at exactly the right time. By the way,
way, he's not missing right now. God is not on vacation. He's not sleeping. He knows exactly what's happening in every part of the world, including this United States of America. And it says here that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. I'm thankful that God sent Jesus in the midst of us. Jesus didn't just come in the midst of us. He, he came here as a perfect Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In John 1.29. Jesus Christ came here as a human being, but as a perfect, pure, holy, righteous human being. We have never seen a man like that. Well, we saw one named Adam. But Adam fell. He's called the first Adam in Scripture, and Jesus is the second. Jesus did for us what Adam could never do. He lived his life without sin the entire time he was here. And as it says in that verse, he came to redeem us, all of us who are under that law. By the way, God never changed his law. He didn't need to. It was right the first time. And his law demands that if we have sin, that sin has to be taken care of. And Jesus Christ came here as a human being, lived among us. And, and Peter, when he was questioned there at the temple, if you remember the story, I think I made an allusion to this a couple of weeks ago. Peter and John were headed into the temple, by the way, in the very area where the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and all were the ones who had crucified Christ, who had, who had orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ. He's standing in front of these very men. And he makes this statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says there, ye men of Israel. And I, I just love this because I have the feeling that these Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a feeling they were going to intimidate Peter and John. Are you with me? They're just common fishermen. And I want to tell you today, the world thinks they can intimidate believers today still. But I want to tell you, when, you're on the, when you have God on your side, you're on the winning side. And Peter, he looked them square in the eyeball, and I could just see him putting his finger out at them, saying, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Now, would you read the rest of the verse with me from that point? Look at up, up there, right after the semicolon. Ye men of Israel, hear, the, hear these words. Read it with me like we've been doing for the last few weeks, with, with meaning and purpose. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Don't you love it? Peter says, I don't have to tell you a new story. You know the man I'm talking about. He was in the midst of you. He did miracles that you wanted to discredit. He, he performed miracles that you wanted to say were false and were, were actually um, given the, the power by the devil himself. But Jesus Christ, who stood in the midst of you, you know who healed this man. They'd ask, who healed this man? And he, he let them know. And I want to tell you something. Jesus had a purpose for being in the midst of human beings. Now, please don't just zone me out because you know this information. I'm not telling you anything new. You know why Jesus came in the midst of us. But it ought to thrill your soul why he came in the midst of us. He left heaven and all the splendor and beauty and glory of heaven to be in this wretched, sin-cursed, pitiful earth and world filled with people who were just as vile then as they are today. Men have not become more vile. 
They've been vile all along. And by the way, we're in that number. If it were not for Jesus being in the midst, we are in that number. And we'd have no hope whatsoever of ever being anything different. So the last thing I want to tell you, I've got two last verses that I want to share with you. I've been holding on to them for nine straight weeks. I can't wait for you to see them. Would you open your Bible with me? Actually, I'm going to get to them in a little bit. I've got to work my way there. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I want you to see, uh, I want to set up the scene for you uh, that we're going toward. In Mark chapter 15, we've, we come to the place where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And uh, Jesus is brought out. Pilate's wife comes and says, don't have anything to do with this guy. I've had a very bad dream. Don't touch the man. Pilate has said multiple times, I find no fault in him. I don't know why you want to crucify this man. I, I would choose a, someone a whole lot different than him. And so he, he, he searches through the prison, and he finds the most detestable man he can find in the prison. It says there in Mark 15, look at verse 7. And there was one named what? Barabbas. Barabbas. We all know his name. Which lay bound. What's the, what are the next two words? Let's try it again. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him who had committed murder in the insurrection. So Pilate looks through the prison. He sifts through all of the prisoners that are there, and he's looking for, and he, might, he probably whispered to his uh, right-hand man, hey, go find me the worst guy down there. I mean the guy who's, who's detestable, everybody hates him. Even the prisoners don't like him. Get me that guy. And they bring up Barabbas. The Bible tells us here he was guilty of insurrection. We use the word rebellion. Now, he was rebelling against probably the Roman government. But in that insurrection, this verse tells us, in his rebellion, he murdered someone. So Barabbas is a rebel and he's a murderer. He is everything Jesus is not. As a matter of fact, Jesus had, had preached against obedience and compliance and he had also preached against having thoughts that were hateful that would be equal to murder. Jesus had set the standard so high that no one but him could ever attain that, that standard. But Jesus held that standard. This man was guilty of everything Jesus was innocent of. But he's the one that's brought out. You know the story. I believe that Jesus Christ took the place of one of the worst criminals that they had in the prison system at that time. However, I had you read those two words with them because I believe that the two men that are on either side of Christ crucified with him were the other two worst criminals in the prison. I think they probably were in a, a team with Barabbas and they all probably got caught at the same time. And as, as we see those two words with him, with them, I'm sorry, in, in Mark chapter 15, we realize that Jesus is being crucified between two horrendous criminals. Barabbas, the worst, has been set free. What a great picture for us, amen? The worst sinner. By the way, you might say today, oh, you don't know what I've done. Uh, Jesus could never forgive me. I have news for you. I don't know what you've done, but Jesus does, and he took the place of Barabbas. And by the way, the, the story's not over because he's going to save one of these guys that's hanging next to him here on the cross. Turn to John chapter 19. Here's the verse I've been aiming for. 
I got a little ahead of myself before. I'm sorry. I told you I was excited about it. In John chapter 19, we come to the, the in the midst that I want you to see tonight. We're going to park here for a little bit. The Bible says there in John 19, verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one. And read the last phrase with me, would you? And Jesus in the midst. This one crushes my soul. It crushes my soul. These were two guys that if, if you saw these men and you had your family with you, you would move your family to the other side of the street because they were that disgusting. They were that detestable. They were that crude. They were that vile that if your family were with you, you would move to the other side of the street. And God put my Savior in the midst of them. There he hung as a common criminal between two men that deserved the death of crucifixion. Of course, Jesus did not. I remember as a boy growing up in church. By the way, I loved that I grew up in church. I loved being in church. I loved it when I was a kid. I loved it as a teenager. I still love it today. But I can remember being in church, and I would see pictures of Jesus with the nails in his hands and his feet. And I was disgusted by it as a kid. And some people might say, oh, you shouldn't show children those kind of pictures. I disagree completely. Because, by the way, I see those pictures of Jesus with the nails in his hands and feet now, and it still disgusts me, and it should. Because it's a horrible picture. It wasn't a beautiful picture. There was Jesus hanging on that cross, and, and to me, that cross is something that's incredibly sacred. That cross to me is... <laughs> If I didn't have another thing to preach but the cross and the, and the empty tomb, I would have enough to preach for the rest of my life. That cross means something to me. But what means something to me in this verse that we look at up here is that here is Jesus, and I want you to kind of look at the, at the uh, just the verse and break it down just a little bit, where they crucified him. The idea that Jesus had to be crucified is a disgusting thought, but it's a true thought. You know, the wages of my sin and your sin is what? There's no getting around that, folks. Today, uh, we, we live in a politically correct time when we don't, like to, we don't like anybody to lose. We give participation trophies. I'm glad they didn't have them when I was a kid. I wanted to win. I wanted to win the first place trophy. I didn't want a participation trophy. But we live in a world today that, that tells us that that you're not as bad, you're not so bad, everything's fine, everybody's all right, we're all the same. But I want to tell you something, crucifixion was, came to Jesus Christ because the wages of my sin and the wages of your sin is death. There he hung, crucified. Uh, then it says in that verse that there was, he was crucified and two other with him on either side one. So here is Jesus, again I mentioned these men, they're disgusting men. They're men that no mother would want her children to be near. They're, they're men of a horrible reputation. And here hangs Jesus in the midst of them. By the way, can I say this, just a side note? I can because it's my last time to speak to you tonight. A little side note for you. What a privilege it is to be in the midst of those kind of people. To tell them that Jesus came in the midst of them. 
I don't want, you know what, I believe this with all my heart. I really believe this with all of my heart. If Jesus Christ walked on the face of the earth today in 2020, he would not show up at Valley Forge Baptist. He would show up at Camp Hill Prison. He would show up at the, the uh, Chosen 300 dinners. He would show up at the places where none of us really want to go. But that's where he would be because that's where he ended his physical life in the midst of these two. I love the fact that Jesus is in the midst. I put down on my notes, and I'm not going to sing for you tonight, but I love two great old hymns for a reason. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. By the way, we ought to sing this more often. Amen. Because we love to boast. We were talking about it at supper tonight or this afternoon. I, I pray for young preachers who, are, who God has really blessed. I pray that they won't let pride overwhelm their ministry. And I, say, I pray that because I'm praying they won't let pride overwhelm my ministry. I don't want to ever take credit for anything God has done. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. I want to hold that cross high. He goes on to say, did all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrificed them to his blood. And then I love the third verse, my favorite. See from his head, his hands, his feet. And I love this line. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? I can answer that, never. Never in the history of mankind and never since. What a great Savior. Or thorns composed. So rich a crown. Uh, my favorite song in all the world is, oh, I was supposed to push this button, sorry. I forget to push the button once in a while. Let me, let me do it now for the next one. My favorite song in the whole wide world is How Great Thou Art. My favorite verse is the third verse. By the way, Ukraine claims this song as their hymn. They claim it was written in Ukraine, and the words are about the, on the Caspian Mountains and all that. They, they think it's theirs. I'm not going to argue with them. Because they're pretty fierce people right now. I'm not going to play with them. But I love the third verse. I love them all, but the third verse is my absolute favorite. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take that in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing he bled he died where I should have been to take away my sin he came in the midst he came in the midst of my sin he came in the midst of your sin he came in the midst for us the last phrase of that verse is in, in on the bottom line Jesus in the midst I love that Jesus in the midst. I'm so glad for that. You know, I've taught you eight weeks already, and some of you are like, we're glad you're moving on. <laughs> but I taught you for eight weeks, and I taught you about the Word of God being in the midst of us. I taught you about uh, God showing up in the midst of our troubles. We used the uh, Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea, and the Egyptians in the midst being destroyed. By the way, God can still do that kind of stuff. And we talked about Jesus being in the midst of our challenges. We talked about him being in the midst of us when we're at our worst. We talked about the 
believer staying in the midst of the battle and not getting out. We talked about God in the midst of the fire with the three Hebrew men and Jesus showed up. We talked about just a couple weeks ago, Jesus being in the midst of two or three who were praying. And then last week we talked about Jesus being in the midst of the camp as the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp. And I, I challenge you that his presence stays in the midst of our local church. Can I tell you that none of those in the midst are possible if this one is not there? If Jesus is not in the midst, none of those other ones make any difference. But he is in the midst. He was in the midst. He remains in the midst. Let me give you one last one, and then, and then this is going to be the end of the end of this study. In Luke chapter 23, we're still at the crucifixion site. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, the Bible says this, And the sun was darkened. I love this. <laughs> and the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was rent, what? In the midst. In the midst. I preached a few years ago the Good Friday service over in, when we were in the actual church building. Over there. Remember those days when we used to meet over there? <laughs> Those were good days, weren't they? Uh, nothing wrong with where we're meeting now. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm glad we can meet wherever. But I, re I remember being asked to preach a Good Friday service, and I preached on this verse. I preached on the, the meaning of that veil being rent, split from the top to the bottom. Matthew tells us it was split from the top to the bottom. I think that's significant. Last week, I talked to you about the tabernacle. Remember, I had the picture of the tabernacle up here, and we... We come in past the brazen altar and the brazen labor. We come into the holy place. And in there we see to our left the golden candlestick to the center of the altar of incense to the right, the table of showbread. And then if you remember, I told you there was a veil that separated that holy place from the holy of holies. That holy of holies was where the Shekinah glory of God rested, the presence of God in the form of a, a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. Remember all that last week? Okay, you're with me? Good. On one day of the year, one day of the year, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, today they call it Yom Kippur or Yom Kippur, I'm not sure which it is. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take incense from that altar of incense into a small censer like a, a birdcage on a chain. He would reach his hand inside behind that curtain and he would wave that around to fill the the room with the incense, which represented the prayers of believers to God. He then would, with fear and trepidation, he would step himself inside the, the Holy of Holies to ask for the forgiveness for sins for Israel for that year as a nation, as a corporate forgiveness of sin. Tradition tells us that that priest, and I taught this before, so I won't dwell on it too much. Tradition tells us that he would tie a rope around his leg in case he had personal sin in his life. He would have been struck dead on the spot. He was in the presence of God. That's why I say he went in there with fear and trepidation. I don't know about you. I would not volunteer for that job because I fear. I know me. Now, you think I'm a really good guy, but my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God knows it, and I don't even know how evil it is. I would not have wanted to be that man. I would have, I mean, I've been sweating. I would have sweat through all my clothes just stepping in around that curtain. 
But on this day that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the midst of those thieves, Jesus in the midst, this happened simultaneously. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine if you were one of the common priests in the temple that day, and you're going about, maybe you're, you're moving around the table, if you're the man on the table of showbread, you're getting it all set just right, and you go over to make sure the golden candlesticks had enough olive oil in it for the night so it makes it through the night. You go to the altar of incense, and all of a sudden you hear, <coughs> I guess I'm imagining there was some noise. I don't know. And you look up, and, the t and that veil, by the way, that veil was a span's width thick, woven. This was not a sheet uh, that you use on your bed at night. This was a, a, a veil that was, was, hand wo was woven together six inches thick, and it was heavy. As, and that thing began to rip. It, by the way, it didn't rip by man. God ripped the veil. And you look up and that veil begins to rip. I'm going to tell you right now, you would freeze for a moment or two. But as soon as you came to your sentence, senses, you would probably hide your eyes and run for cover. Because if you saw the presence of God and, and you were with sin in your life, you'd be killed too. So you'd be headed for the hills. However, God was speaking loud and clear through the veil. And what was he saying? My son has come in the midst. And if my son is in the midst of your heart, there is no separation between you and I. Wow. Woo-wee! Too bad we're not Pentecostal. You guys would be running up and down the aisles and falling on the floor right now. Hallelujah. Yeah, praise the Lord. Man, O'Day, we got to go. We got the key to heaven. We have the key to heaven. We have not only the key to heaven, we have the key. When we bow our knees in prayer and we beg God for our families and for these people we prayed for tonight and for Ukraine and for other nations, Scotland, that we have burdens for, hey, I want to tell you something. There's something powerful about getting on your knees before the God of eternity when that veil has been ripped from top to bottom. We get to step into the midst of heaven. One day we'll step there literally. But right now we get to step in there through prayer in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It doesn't get any better than that. And I want to tell you tonight as I close this this theme of in the midst the only way for you and I to be able to step into the midst of heaven is through Jesus Christ if he does not represent you if you're counting on a priest if you're counting on Pastor Wendell if you're counting on your good works as opposed to your bad things if you're counting on well I'm a member of this church if you're counting on your communion you say Jim what are you talking about religions teach all of those things all of those things are ways to heaven. I'm sorry, none of those things rent the veil. None of those things can make you pure from the sin that's inherently in your heart. None of them can. Only Jesus. Praise God. That's why we sing, Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. 
how great thou art. I want to say to you tonight that Jesus Christ in the midst gives us the privilege to know God. Not as an entity. Isn't that wonderful, by the way? You used to think about God in ideas like, oh, that, he's way out there. He, but when you're, when you're a Christian, you don't think of God like that, do you? No, he's my father. Now, I don't know about you. And by the way, my dad's in heaven now, but I would love to just go in a room. I never had to go in a room with my dad and say, my dear father, may I have an entrance into your Are you kidding me? I'd walk in, plop down on the chair, and we'd start talking. That's my father. When you're a believer, and I don't mean any disrespect that we just walk in and plop down, but I'm going to tell you, there's no time you will not be welcome in your father's house. Your, your heavenly father loves you beyond words. And, and obviously he loves you. You say, how do I know he loves me? Look at the cross, my word. Amen. He allowed his son to be in the midst of us vile, wretched sinners so that he could redeem us from the law so that he could pay our price, so that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Tonight I want you to revel in the fact, as we close this series, that Jesus is in the midst. Father, thank you. We love you. We don't tell you that enough. We don't think about it enough. We spend so much time coming to you, asking you for things, demanding almost that you fulfill our wish list as though you're Santa Claus or something. God, tonight we don't want to come asking you for a thing. We want to come into your presence because Jesus was in the midst. And he died for us. And he rose from that grave. And our sins have been forgiven because of him. We come today thankful. Thankful that you took our place when we were horrendous sinners. You commended your love toward us. While we were still sinning away, you died in our place. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus in the midst. Thank you for ripping that veil in the midst. Thank you for welcoming us into your presence. Help us, Lord, to represent you in these days ahead. Lord, we do pray that you will use us to be a beacon of light in this dark world. Help us not to curse the darkness. Help us to raise the light. We ask in Jesus' name. If you have a Bible, please open the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 today. Ezekiel chapter 38. Through my emails, I have encouraged you to read Ezekiel 37, 38, 39 to be familiar with my message this morning. If you're not getting my emails, then you need to take a Connect card, fill out the information that you might get that so you can be up to date with what's happening. Our hearts ache as we see the images of death and destruction and as we hear the news. This type of evil is not new to a sin-cursed world, but it is new to a young generation who have not seen the images of war on this scale. And it's new to our Valley Forge Baptist missionaries as well. This is the first time one of our missionaries has been in the middle of a war. We've had several missionaries in danger in civil wars like Ron and Christine Enoch there in South Sudan. Uh, but our missionary Bruce Tuttle, he chose to stay with the people that he's ministering to. He was widowed several years ago, and so he is there of 
of supporting missionaries for 37 years, of supporting over 200 missionaries. First time we've had one in a war zone. And so he has been giving us regular updates. Also, we have an update uh, from his translator, Tatcha. And so we want to be able to, uh, to have you just be able to see them, that we might be able to pray for them today. This is his son. Are you rested? Are you getting sleep? Do you have resources? Money? Food? Are you losing weight? I, I think this is God's weight loss program for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, we could have done it an easier way. But, well, just for the possibility that this would happen, this invasion, I had bought some extra foods, especially staple foods like oatmeal, which I don't enjoy, uh, macaroni, spaghetti, millet, uh, rice, stuff like that, so that I'd have something to sustain life. Uh, and I even stored up some water, but now all that's pretty much gone. But, but we still have water. And we have a generator we can take out to the village of a, uh, where one of our pastors is rebuilding a house. And he's got a well there. If we have a generator, we can, we can get good water. So stuff like that. Uh, I think we'll run out quickly, though, because there'll be so many people who need help. And, and even financially, I tried to have enough money here for three or four months, personally, for my needs. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to last. So one of our concerns is, how long can we still get money through the banks here? We, we exhausted because nobody sleeps during this, this night from the very beginning and uh, you know sometimes you think that you I'm just going crazy because of that uh, so uh, church is is holding to God and and I think that I have I have never seen yet people who ask question why it is why you've done this to us nobody asked God as long as I see people they just praise God and I I really appreciate those people that say that uh, even we should pray not even that God would stop the war but that we should be light in all of that because maybe this is his plan and and I told a lot of people that you know even Nebuchadnezzar he was um, he was um, servant of God and God calls him his servant so maybe Putin is also servant of God. Nobody knows. We don't understand this plan because at that time it was easier. They had prophets who would just come and, and tell you what is going on. Now we didn't have prophets, but we just have trust in God. You know, he, he, can, he can stop everything in one minute. But if he doesn't do that until this time, so it means that something going on, something bigger than we see. Maybe it's a more bigger picture than we see. So just pray that Christians here would not would not lose hope, and uh, that we could be the light. You know, Katja has more understanding than all the news reporters you've heard in the last two weeks. Another clip from Brother Tuttle. He said that two men in his town. Uh, were captured. They were Russian soldiers in plain clothes, placing a GPS signal at a hospital for a missile strike. And so, thankfully, that was averted because uh, they were captured, paratroopers coming into his town. They don't really have military there, and so it's the civilian men that are seeking to protect the town that he is in. So what does 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine mean? Would you please stand with me as I read from Ezekiel chapter 38? It is, it is an account of history. Understand, I'm reading to you an account of history that just has not happened yet, but it will happen exactly as it is recorded here. Ezekiel chapter 38, an amazing prophecy. I begin in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, and all them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north, quarters and all his bands and many people with thee be thou prepared and prepare for thyself thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee and be thou a guard unto them after many days now it's Israel after many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years thou Israel shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel which have been always waste but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, Israel, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it, it, all, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. Now, this is, these are the invaders, the alliance of countries. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Why? To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, Israel, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. May we pray. Lord, we once again come into your presence and we ask you for an understanding of these amazing prophecies. Help us to be like the men of Issachar who knew what to do because they understood the times around them. So, Father, we ask for an understanding by the Word of God, the preaching of truth, the Spirit of God, to help us to be better prepared, to be at rest in you, to have faith in you, to trust in you, to know what we ought to do. I pray if there be one that knows not Christ, help them to see the urgency of the hour, to turn to you, help apathetic and Laodicean Christians to have revival in their hearts, to get on fire, to love you and serve you. Bless now our time in your word. Remove the distractions and cares that we can focus on the message you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So let's understand what's been happening during the last 11 days. Uh, from the big picture, the 35,000-foot view, all the way down to the up-close and personal view, the boots on the ground, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the big picture, the 35,000-foot view. What are, we, what are we supposed to take away from what has happened? And the answer is very clear. We are one step closer to the coming of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, right before his crucifixion, sitting in the Mount of Olives, teaching the Word of God, the disciples ask him this question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? What shall be the signs of the end of the world? And the Lord Jesus gave the answer. It's in your notes. Take heed that no man deceive you. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. If you got a pen or a pencil, you need to underline those words. See that ye be not troubled, not afraid, not worried, not fearful. For all, why? For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There should be famines and pestilences. That's the word for pandemics and earthquakes in diverse places. Matthew 24, 4-7. The events predicted in Matthew 24 are fulfilled in the coming seven-year tribulation, which begins immediately after the rapture. The rapture is the catching away of Christians to heaven, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When we see these events happening at the end of the church age, we know the coming of Christ is drawing near. Jesus gave the illustration of a mom going into labor. And as her labor pains increase in frequency and intensity, so you know her newborn will soon be delivered. The new millennial kingdom is getting closer and closer as we observe these world events. Now, what about the immediate implications, the up-close and personal view? The Bible predicts a coming invasion of Israel from a coalition of armies led by a military power from the north of Israel. Does the prophecy of Ezekiel refer to Russia? If so, is the invasion of Ukraine a prelude to a coming invasion of other countries, including Israel? On February 24th, the military forces of Russia invaded Ukraine in an all-out, full-scale assault by land, sea, and air in what is the biggest attack by one country on another country in Europe not seen since World War II. Can you imagine the fear of these soldiers lying in the middle of the street waiting, waiting for the approaching army of tanks, and missiles coming upon them. Our Pentagon says that Russia has fired over 500 missiles into Ukraine. Russia has used cluster and vacuum bombs against civilians that have been banned by over 110 countries. They have bombed both hospitals and preschools. Though we do not know the end of this current conflict, we do know the ultimate end. So how does... This invasion fit into Bible prophecy and world history. Well, let me explain it this way. 
as uh, at Christmas we are reviving Jody's Friesen family Christmas tradition. We started a couple of years ago. We began building a puzzle over the holiday season. And so here is the, uh, the puzzle lid that I, uh, I, I, really, I really need uh, to be able to build a puzzle. Helps me figure it out where the little pieces fit together. Uh, when, when you look at the individual puzzle piece, it's hard to, to make sense of it. You look at this particular one, I see some blue, I see some rope, some yellow there. And so if you're going to build a puzzle in my house, this is what's going to be next to me. All right, if there's a whole group, I want it right next to me. I want to be looking at this thing. I want to try and figure out uh, what, uh, where the piece goes. Now, now, if this gives you an idea, oh, oh I think I'm going to get Pastor and Jody a 1,000, 2,000-piece puzzle for Christmas next year, forget it. Don't do it because I'm just going to re-gift it right back to you, okay? <laughs> Not going to do it. All right, so, so you, you look at the piece and you look at the big picture and you try and figure out where does this piece go? Do you know that one Bible commentator calls the CNN view of news? It's like looking at this puzzle piece. The CNN view of news. No possibility of God involved in historical events. Clashes between nations are nothing but, but random events. They never see supernatural beings, demons, God's angels, or God himself as being a part of controlling world events. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. But when you and I come to the house of God, when we open up the word of God, we begin to understand what in the world is happening. God sees and God controls uh, the whole picture. Now, my contribution to this puzzle was building the Eiffel Tower, all right? You know, it's easy to do the border, right? And then I did the Eiffel Tower because that was pretty easy to do. And then Jody and Megan, uh, they did the hard part and got it together. So let's together look at the cover of the box. Let's see the big picture. Let's see what in the world is happening. And we find that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Then you can begin to see where the individual piece or events fit in that big picture. What are we told? We are told of a coming future invasion, an alliance of armies that come against Israel. We are told the place of the attack. We are told the purpose of the attack. We are told how the battle will end. So let's begin there in your notes, number one, the alliance of the armies, Ezekiel 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto me. This is God's word. This is God's truth. This will happen exactly as I read it to you today. Son of man, that's Ezekiel. Set thy face against Gog, that's the leader. The land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So how do we begin to identify modern nations that were written about 2,500 years ago? Well, Bible scholars approach this by using a genetic relationship to their ancestors as they use citizens of a particular nation or region or by the name identified by outsiders. Now, all of these countries but one were founded by Noah's grandsons and one by Noah's great-grandson. You find that in Genesis 10, verses 2 to 6. So what are the potential countries 
in modern times that will invade Israel. We begin with Gog from the land of Magog, Russia. Magog, Noah's grandson, settled around the Black and Caspian Seas on Russia's southern border. It includes all of the countries that, that withstand, the stands, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. You know what all of these countries have in common? All of these 60 million people have something in common, and it's a religion. And that religion is the faith of Islam, which is set against Israel. Meshach and Tubal, also Russia. Many identify Meshach as Moscow and Tubal as Tobolsk. Gog is the leader of Magog, Russia. He is the prince of Meshach and Tubal, Russia. Russia extends for 6,000 miles east and west, directly north of Israel. So if you go to any world map, you find Israel, and you go north, and you keep going north, you come to a major city. That major city is what? It's Moscow. And because of the large size of the invading army, because of the location of the country, it is indisputable that it is Russia. Some Bible scholars believe the king of the north is the Antichrist, and the battle described here is the Battle of Armageddon. In my study, I would not be dogmatic to say that is not true, but there are several points that seem to make it unlikely, chief of which is this. The Antichrist is the ruler of the revived Roman Empire, Daniel 2, Daniel 5, and that has to be a European leader, not the leader north of Israel. Persia, verse 5, that's Iran, indisputable. Today, Russia is Iran's strongest ally and Israel's strongest enemy. This alliance will continue into the tribulation. As recent as last night, Russia and Iran were in the news, and the ties that they have together will continue on. Russia is helping Iran develop nuclear weapons with the stated goal by Iran to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Will not happen. Ethiopia, verse 5, that's the modern country of Sudan, another declared enemy of Israel. Libya, verse 5, Libya is the only nation in the list that retains its ancient name in modern time. Libya's official religion is Islam, maintains strong ties with Russia. Verse 6, Gomer, modern Germany. The world knows of the history of the Jewish people with the modern Germany in World War II. We've all heard of it in recent days of, of how much energy Germany is dependent upon Russia, and so we can see that alliance is going to come together. Verse 6, Tagar Tagarma, that's modern Turkey. Turkey. Now, regardless of the exact modern identities, these nations are a part of an alliance with Russia as its leader. Russia and Turkey will lead in from the north. Iran will join from the east. Sudan and Libya uh, will, will press in from the south and possibly Germany from the west. Number two, the prerequisites of the attack on Israel. There are three conditions that have to be met before Russia and her allies can enter the land of Israel. Letter A, number one, Israel must be present in the land. You know, for 2,000 years, they haven't been there. They've been scattered over all the world, living among the Gentiles in a fulfillment given by 
Jesus Christ a prophecy in Matthew 24 2 he says not one stone will be left upon another the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and with a final rebellion by Simon Bar Kokhba in 135 AD Jews have not been in their land just a very small remnant and sometimes none at all but now in these days in the last days they were going to come back into the land and so the fulfillment is given to us Ezekiel chapter 30 is a prophecy of the valley of dry bones and if you know that story about the bones and and God says preach to the bones and 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 he he asked Ezekiel the question can these bones live and he said Lord only you know and he preaches and the bones rattle and then they come together and the sinew and the muscles and the flesh and the clothes and they stand up as a mighty army and we sing the song them bones, them bones, them dry bones, right? You know that song? Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, and the foot bone connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone connected to the shin bone, and the shin bone connected to the thigh bone, and then the hip bone, and the back bone, and the neck bone. Would you like me to sing the song to you today? I got nothing but no's from the choir in the earlier service today. That song is based on Ezekiel 37. It is a picture it is a picture of the Jewish people coming back into the land and becoming a nation, and there is the date of the fulfillment. May 14, 1948, Israel became a country, the Palestine Post, there in Jerusalem. So that prophecy is fulfilled. It is amazing, but there's two more conditions. Condition number two, Israel must be prosperous in her land. Chapter 38, look at verse 8. It says, after many days, thou shalt be visited in the latter years. That's us right now. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, gathered out of many people from across the world uh, uh, to the mountains of Israel which have been always waste. It was a time of, of, of desolation. You know, 150 years ago, Mark Twain visited Israel. Very popular in our country. Everybody read what he wrote. He said, Palestine, Israel, is desolate and unlovely. As he rode on horseback through the Jezreel Valley, he observed there is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction, not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles and not see 10 human beings. He asked the question, can the curse of deity beautify a land? And it had been that way for hundreds of years. Mark Twain also wrote in that trip, uh, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, okay? So uh, he was there, he saw it, it was desolate, and it has been desolate until recent times. God promises in the last days to bless Israel beyond anything they have known in their history. Chapter 36, verse 11, we won't turn to it, but chapter 38, verse 12, look what verse 12 says. The enemy is going to come in to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. The modern fulfillment of this prophecy is obvious with Israel's thriving economy. Right now, Israel is ranked as the world's third most innovative country in the world, ahead of Japan, ahead of the United States, 
of America. And so the first two prerequisites have been fulfilled. What about number three? Letter C, Israel must be at peace in her land in the last days. How many of you have been to Israel? Would you please raise your hands? Okay, you talk to any of these people. When you go to Israel today, you will see many young men and young women in the military with guns slung across their back. Why? Wherever you go, wherever you go, because they know that at any moment they could be attacked by their neighbors, and they are. Not a year goes by where there's not shelling, there's not bombs, there's not missiles that comes into the land of Israel. They are not dwelling in safety at this time. But when, when Gog, the leader of Russia, brings this attack on Israel, they are dwelling in a time of peace. Chapter 38, verse 11. Look at the description of the peace the Jewish people will have when this attack occurs. Thou shalt say, the invader of the alliance will say, I will go to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, to them that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. So we know this could be a historical prophecy because they had so many walls uh, to defend their cities. Israel is not dwelling in peace now. And we know that they will be greatly persecuted in the second half of the tribulation when the Antichrist sets up an idol in the temple in Jerusalem and desecrates it. The tribulation is seven years long. There's relative false peace in the first three and a half years. At the midpoint, the Antichrist goes into Jerusalem, into the temple, sets up an idol like an audio animatronic that can move and speak, and he begins an all-out persecution on Jews and Christians. Jesus called this event the abomination of desolation. He makes the temple abominable and it becomes desolate because there's persecution, all out persecution. And so they are not dwelling in Israel in safety in the second half of the tribulation period. And if the tribulation begins with the false peace, brokered by the Antichrist, and then it's broken in the middle of the tribulation, that means this prophecy cannot happen in the second half of the tribulation, but that places it in the first half of the tribulation. Jesus warned people to flee, Matthew 24, 15 to 19. He says, run for the hills when that occurs. We are told of the place of the attack. The armies descend from the north, chapter 38, verse 15. Thou shalt come from the place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Just as, just as our navel, belly button, is the center of our body, so Israel is the center of the world. And so when you, you read in the scriptures about north, south, east, and west, it's all based on being in Jerusalem. And so they're coming, they're coming from the north. The armies come on the mountains of Israel. Chapter 38, verse 8, uh, we see that here. They come against the mountains of Israel. Uh, chapter 39, verse 2, uh, I will turn thee back. But notice it says at the end, I will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. Hey, hey, where does the battle of Armageddon occur? In the valley of what? Megiddo. The valley of Megiddo, it's in a valley. This battle is not in the valley. This battle is on the mountains. What about the purpose of the attack? 
Why would they do this? Why would these nations come into Israel? Well, the first reason, obviously, is anti-Semitism. For centuries, Russia has been notorious for hatred and persecution of Jews living in that land. Another reason is Russia can once again have superpower status if they align themselves with Islamic nations. And that is according to British intelligence. But the Word of God gives us the reason to plunder the wealth of Israel. Chapter 38, verse 12, they say to themselves, I'm going to take a spoil, I'm going to take a prey, I'm going to take the cattle, the goods. Verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions, they're going to say, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So that is their purpose. But then comes the destruction of the alliance by God. Now, chapter 39 is very specific. It's not symbolic. It's not, it's not to be spiritualized away. This is literally going to happen. Notice with me chapter 39, verse 1. Therefore, son of man, Ezekiel, prophecy against Gog, the ruler of Russia, say Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. God's description of the destruction is catastrophic. Chapter 38, verse 18, My fury shall come up in my face. Chapter 38, verses 19 and 20, a great earthquake. There should be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Mountains shall be thrown down, steep places shall fall. Chapter 38, verse 21, soldiers fight one another. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Chapter 38, verse 22, pestilence, overflowing rain. Now, in the first service, we had rain coming down, so it was kind of some nice background music to, uh, to what was happening. Great hailstones, fire, brimstone, Chapter 39, verse 3, I'll smite the bow out of thy left hand, cause thine arrows to fall out of the right hand. Chapter 39, verse 6, I will send fire on Magog. Look here at the screen. God says five-sixths of the army will be destroyed, meaning that one-sixth can return home. That's why I do not believe this is the Battle of Armageddon, because in the Battle of Armageddon, there are no survivors. The armies of the world gather to fight against Christ. He destroys them all. In this battle, one-sixth survive and return. Notice the, the, the detail given in chapter 39, verse 9. Read it with me. And they shall, and they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the hand staffs and the spears. They shall burn them with fire. How long? Seven years. Seven years. They will burn the weapons and the armament for seven years. That'll take them into the time of the millennial kingdom. Chapter 39, verse 12. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them that they may cleanse the land. It'll take seven months to bury the bones of the dead soldiers. We are told the purpose of the destruction. 
The purpose is the empowerment of Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 and 45 speaks of the movements of the battles of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. John MacArthur writes, Antichrist wins. Russia will substantially be decimated to retreat back to the north. He, the Antichrist, shall enter into the countries and shall overflow. Having defeated the king of the south, the north, the African army, and taking credit for the defeat of the Russian army and its Arab allies, he enters to the glorious land Israel. He then calls upon the whole world to worship him. He abolishes all false religion. He sets himself up as a god. He'll tolerate no other kings, no other gods. He will rule in absolute supremacy. All the countries will follow him. And you know what happens next. Revelation 6 to 18 begins to take place. God pours out his wrath. Seven seals are open. Seven trumpets are blown. Seven bowls are poured out. And God's wrath explodes at this point on the earth. Relative peace for three and a half years. And literally all hell breaks loose with the judgments of God. It also, the purpose of this destruction is the rescue of Israel. Chapter 39, uh, verse 22. We see that God says, So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. We find it also in verse 28. Without God, once again, Israel would have been obliterated and destroyed. It'll never happen. Mark it down. Never, never, never will the Jewish people be destroyed because they've been chosen as God's people and through the Jewish people came the Messiah, Jesus, our Savior. But there's a third reason that God will decimate this, this alliance of armies. God will be glorified. Chapter 38 and verse 23. Chapter 38 and verse 23. Thus... Will I magnify myself, God says, and sanctify myself? I will be known in the eyes of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. God has a plan, and he is fulfilling that plan. So, so what does this mean? What does Ezekiel's prophecy mean to us? Number one, God controls history. God controls history. Do not fear. Would you say that with me today? Do not fear. Would you say it again for emphasis? Do not fear. Would you say it as a trilogy? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not lose sleep because of what is going on, because God is in control. We're, we're to walk by faith in difficult times. As Christians, we're on God's side. We're on the winning side. Prophecies like this remind us that we serve a great and awesome God. Nothing is beyond his power. Number two, God will save his people, Israel. As the Ukrainians are right now fighting for their life and their freedom, so one day Israel will be invaded. But they will not fight. God will fight for them. We can often feel powerless. We can feel like we want to throw our hands up in the air and give up. This is not the time to give up. This is the time to seize the moment. This is the time to be able to talk to people about pandemics and wars and rumors of wars and the soon return of Christ. This is the time to engage people. They're afraid. 
they're fearful, they don't understand, and you take them. You know, the Bible has something to say about pandemics and wars. It's Matthew 24, 6, and 7. And you take this track, it says peace. And if you look in the back, you see a picture, and you can say, you know, the first pastor of our church is up back here. It's kind of an old picture, all right? Uh, but uh, you, can, you can give it to someone and say, this will show you how you can have peace in here, peace in your heart. Carp diem. Seize the moment. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your friends. Talk to strangers. What an opportunity God has given to us to engage people in conversation and talk about the Lord. Now is the time to humble your heart and receive Christ as your Savior if you're not born again. One more meaning about this prophecy. Number three. The present world will end with a battle, but we will rule and reign with Christ for eternity. This is not that final battle. There's a battle called Gog and Magog, different battle, different time, different people, end of the millennial kingdom. And Jesus wins that battle as well. Robert Louis Stevenson, he wrote this story, and I close with it this morning. There was a ship in a violent, violent, stormy sea. The ship was driven against the rocks. At any moment, they were going to be dashed into pieces to their death. Uh, the passengers in the ship were huddled together in, in, in terror, facing, facing uh, this destruction. And in the agony of that moment, one, one of the men said, I'm going to the bridge. I'm going to go see the captain. And so he made his way up, and there he found the captain at his post, his hands on the wheel, guiding little by little, turning little by little, away from the rocks, back out into the deep part of an ocean. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that when the captain saw the intruder and he looked into his terror-stricken white face, the captain looked at him. And he smiled. And the man turned around, and, and Stevenson said he went back to the deck below, and he shouted to all those fearful people, All is well! All is well! I've seen the captain! And he smiled. I saw the captain's face! He smiled. And you know that? You and I who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we've seen the captain's face. And he smiles. And he's going to say, Welcome home, my child. And as a group sang, I will rise and enter into his glorious presence. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, there is joy forever in heaven. And I hope you know him today. And if you're not a true follower of Christ, receive him today. There is an urgency about the message because of these world events. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the accuracy, the specific details that you give to us. And now as we fit the piece of the puzzle of Russia and Ukraine Today, we better understand that this is a prelude of what will happen in some tomorrow. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I pray, I pray that if you are not born again, if you just have a profession but not a possession,
that today would be the greatest day of your life. Now, if you're saved, if you have no fear of hell because you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ and you're not ashamed to testify to that, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? Pastor, I'm saved. I know that heaven's my home. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. But I'm not sure. I have doubt. I am a bit fearful, both about the world and myself. I want to be saved. I want to give my heart and life to Christ. I want to be born again. You only have to do it once. But if you've never been saved and you sense the Spirit of God tugging on your heart today, would you raise your hand with me and say, Pastor, I want to pray with you today to receive Christ as my Savior. Anyone at all, anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for just a moment. I want to be saved. I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior today. If you're at home watching online with urgency, we invite you to receive Christ. Christian, may I ask you, are you serious about your faith, about growing closer to God, loving God more, loving others, sharing your faith with others? This is not a game. This is the time to give your heart totally, completely to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this amazing prophecy, the detail of it. We thank you that the Spirit of God gives us understanding so we in turn can have a stronger faith as we see the news of our day. Now help us to walk with you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My message is entitled, The First Mission Trip. The First Mission Trip, and so we come uh, to a turning point in church history. Do you remember the outline of the book of Acts? We find it from the lips of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Ye shall be witnesses unto me. And then he gives specific locations. Where, where? In Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So you have a three-point outline there, a three-point division. Geographically, you're going to start in the city of Jerusalem first, then you're going to do the country, Judea and Samaria. Then you're going to go to the uttermost part of the earth with the gospel. And so in about 32, 33 A.D., the New Testament church begins to operate without Jesus Christ being physically present. Though he started his church, he is now gone, but the Holy Spirit is spiritually present with us. And he came upon that little church, 120 people. Now, there were more Clearly, there were more believers all over the, the land, but there's 120 in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Peter preaches on Pentecost. 3,000 Jews are saved. They are baptized the same day. Today, if you visit Israel, right outside the old city wall, you'll see a number of the uh, Jewish 
uh, ritual baths that have been uncovered by archaeology. And so, so it was, they were able with 12 uh, apostles to be able to baptize those 3,000 people. Then 5,000 were saved. Then multitudes were saved. And the church, the church is, is established. I think we have a chart of the book of Acts we're going to show you this time. And so the three divisions there. And so you have, you have the churches established in Jerusalem. And they're predominantly reaching Jews. And then in the second phase, Acts 8 to 12, the church is enlarged. And it reaches out all across the nation of Israel, including Samaria. The gospel is spreading. Believers are multiplying. Lives are being changed. Traditions are being broken uh, as their diet and their fellowship with Gentiles. Samaritans and Gentiles are saved. They're brought into the church. Jesus gave the keys to Peter to open the door to the, of the church to the Jews, to open the door to the Samaritans. And finally, uh, Gentiles getting saved. Acts chapter 11 with Cornelius, a uh, Roman centurion getting saved. So the gospel has spread from the city to the country, and now... It's going to go to the whole world, and we thank God for that tonight because without that happening, we wouldn't be here. We would have no salvation. Beginning in Acts 13, the church has expanded to the uttermost part of the earth. So that brings us to missions. What is missions? Well, if you read articles or go on the Internet or even some books or talk to people, you find everything from spiritual soup to nuts, and they say, well, this is missions. But if you want to know what missions really is, go to the Word of God, particularly go to the book of Acts chapter 13. Now, in the Great Commission, Jesus gave the commission to make disciples and to start churches, to start churches, make disciples and start churches. Would you say that with me? Make disciples and start churches. Matthew 18, he said, teach all nations Go and make disciples. Now, there are three participles. They're going, baptizing, and teaching. And so if you've been saved, you're not yet a disciple of Christ. If you are saved and then you get baptized, you're not yet a disciple of Christ, a learner. A disciple is someone who's been saved, been baptized, and they are growing in the Word of God. And the way you grow in the Word of God, the way you get baptized is you do that in the context of a local church. Uh, the, the New Testament is largely, the book of Acts is a record of, of the spread of local churches. The epistles are letters to local churches or to pastors of local churches. You come to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, Jesus has seven messages, seven letters to seven pastors to seven local churches there in Asia Minor. This is what missions is. Seeing people saved, getting them baptized, and they grow in the context of a local church because we gather together to be able to worship and to celebrate that Jesus Christ is alive, that he's alive. And that's what Sunday is. So, yes, people have said to me, oh, yeah, I can worship God at the beach. I can worship God in the mountains. Well, sure you can. But if you want to be obedient to God, you gather together with the people of God on the first day of the week because we're celebrating that he's alive. He's alive. And we don't worship on, we're not Seventh-day Baptists, we're not Seventh-day Adventists, we don't worship on Sunday, uh, Saturday. The Jews worshiped on Saturday. They celebrated the, the creation of the world. 
Six days God created the world. The seventh day he rested. But something more important than creation happened when Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Resurrection. Very, very special for us. Would you stand with me now as I read to you the first mission trip? Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch, this is in Syria, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Eliamus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt not thou cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season." And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. May we pray. Our Father, we are thankful tonight that you have opened our spiritual eyes, that we have been saved, our sins are forgiven, and we are thankful for the working of God to bring a Bible, a family member, a teacher, a pastor, a track into our lives that we could be saved. Now, God, I pray that we would understand that we are saved for a purpose, to give you glory and to be able to reach others with the gospel. Let your light shine in us and through us. Encourage our hearts, encourage our missionaries. We think again of Brother Tuttle tonight, how we intercede for his safety and those in harm's way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As we get into the book of Acts and we come to chapter 13, we're going to, uh, again, to see some changes in ministry happening. And these changes in ministry, we're going to start with, with Jesus' ministry. Uh, where, where do you think most of Jesus' ministry took place? Did it, did it take place uh, outside in the countryside in the rural areas, or was it more focused in the inner city? Where do you think he had mo the majority of his ministry? Where was it? 
It was outside. It was outside. He said, but didn't he go to the city? Yes, he did. Uh, he went to the city. Uh, Jews, Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And so we find a record of him going to the city uh, several times. Uh, but that's, that's a very short period. And so most of his ministry was done outside in rural areas. But now the ministry of Christ is carried out for the most part in cities. At least 40 different cities are named in the book of Acts where the gospel was preached. From the church in the city of Antioch in Syria, the first mission trip is going to be launched. Notice also that it's this, the center of activity is now changing. Uh, Jerusalem had now been, had been the, the, the center of the launching pad for the gospel during the first 25 years uh, from the resurrection, ascension of Christ and Pentecost. But now 25 years have passed, and now Antioch in Syria, this is north of Israel, is where the gospel will be launched to the rest of the world. The gospel is going out not from a Jewish city, now it's going to go out from a Gentile city. The leadership has also changed. Uh, Peter has been the primary leader for the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and now we're going to see the, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit is now going to follow the Apostle Paul from Acts chapter 13 all the way through Acts chapter 28. So we see a, a change of leadership. Even, even uh, in the church in Jerusalem, James, the half-brother half of our Lord, becomes the pastor, uh, as we will see in Acts 15. So we find in this chapter some keys for an effective, impacting church. And first of all, we see that a church that pleases God needs spirit-filled leadership. As we walk through Acts, we're going to find the leaders of the church. They're not perfect, but they desire to walk with God. They desire to follow God's leading. Right leadership of pastors and deacons and ministry leaders are key. Hosea, the prophet, said, like people, like priests. Hosea 4.9. And God wants his church filled with strong spiritual men as leaders. I've always had a heart to equip our men to be able to be strong in the word of God, strong in marriage, strong spiritual leaders in their home. By contrast, the church at Corinth was a real mess. There's no reference to any pastor. There's no reference to any leader of the church. So whether you are in full-time ministry or not, every man should strive to follow and fulfill the qualifications of character leadership for pastors and deacons. So who are the leaders? Let's look. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Now prophets... Prophets, as you just heard uh, Katja speak, uh, prophets were able both in the Old Testament and New Testament to speak a message from God without having the Bible. And so you had apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. But once the New Testament was written, apostles and prophets passed away. And now you have pastor, teachers, and evangelists, missionaries. Who are the leaders? Five men are listed on the pastoral staff. It's a multi, 
uh, pastoral staff, we find Barnabas, right? And so we find Barnabas, chapter 13, verse 1, uh, past prophets and teachers as Barnabas. Now, we know Barnabas. We know him well. Did a whole message on Barnabas a few months ago. He's a Levite. He's from Cyprus. Uh, he, he, he gave sacrificially when the church had a big financial need. In Acts chapter 4, he sold land, gave the money uh, to help take care of the church members, the new church members who were saved from various places around the Roman Empire. They came to Passover. They got saved. They stayed. They had no jobs, no place to stay, and he helped provide for them. Uh, he was so generous. He was so encouraging. They gave him a nickname. They changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, son of what? Encouragement. I mean, what a guy. What a, what, what a role model for all of us. Son of encouragement. And when the apostles were afraid of Saul of Tarsus, it was Barnabas who took him to the apostles uh, to meet them for that introduction. We also find Simeon. He is a Gentile from Africa. Uh, some think that he may be the Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. Maybe, don't know for sure. Lucius, also a Gentile from North Africa. Menaean, this is interesting. His name means foster brother. He's the foster brother of who? Herod Antipas, the same guy that killed John the Baptist. Talk about the grace of God. I'm sure they must have had some very interesting family holiday celebrations. You know how, how lost people say you should never talk about religion or politics, right? right? Uh, that doesn't apply to us because we're saved. We are to talk about our faith. Uh, somewhat of a Cain and Abel story there. But this man is a pastor, leader in the church at Antioch. And then one more, Saul. Saul, who will become God's apostle to the Gentiles, one born out of due season. Saul was trained in the rabbinic schools. Saul was a great Pharisee, and Saul was the fierce persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. So a church that pleases God, a church that pleases God needs spirit-filled leadership and then spirit-filled service. Notice in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. They're praying. They're praying, not my will, but thine be done. God's will was being done in the church at Antioch. They're being obedient to God. They're being a witness for the Lord. What does spiritual service look like? Well, it's the word for priestly service. Acts 6.4 says the leaders are to give themselves to prayer and to fasting, the ministry of the word of God. So these five men are involved in that. They're just involved in that. They're dedicated to that. You know, God has worked it out for me to be extremely inept in a number of areas so I don't get sidetracked. Cooking. I cannot cook worth beans. Uh, when Jody and I were engaged, she came here for the first time, and I cooked a meal for her, and she was so impressed. She was so impressed. As she tells the story, she says, I thought, wow, good-looking, and he cooks. Okay, I added the good-looking part to the story. But she thought, wow, he cooks. Later, she discovered it was an anomaly, a once-in-a-lifetime experience <laughs> over these last 25 years. I'm not a cook. Uh, we 
have a lot of jokes about that. I'm also a lousy artist. Some of you have seen my artwork in different uh, teaching opportunities. I'm not a handyman. I was so glad when I, when I helped out in the demolition in the worship center. I had the Band-Aid in my pocket. Didn't use it that day. That was a good day. But I pity the poor talented preachers they're talented carpenters and plumbers and electricians and skilled craftsmen because they're so tempted to want to do all those things uh, and it can be a distraction for them if the preacher spends his time on that he robs himself of what he's supposed to do but he's also robbing others who can do those things and can serve God in those ways so if you see a job that needs to be done you just ask hey can I do that job can I do that? And the answer will be yes. Notice also they are separated for service by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And so God spoke to the men, the leaders, and he said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. I believe this was some kind of an audible voice because clearly you've got uh, a unanimous agreement that, that now God is calling Barnabas and Saul to leave their local church and to go as missionaries. A change of address does not make you a missionary. The call to missions came as they were already busy serving God. God does not send people to the mission field who will not walk across the street to witness. I'm sure that some people thought, God, God, please take anybody in our church except Barnabas and Saul. Take anybody. But it was God's will. That's who he chose, and that's who he sent out. Now, what is the call to ministry today? How do you know if you are called to full-time ministry? I refer to more as a surrender than a calling. It is a calling, but I refer to it as a surrender. And I've heard, I've heard it defined by godly men as a series of promptings by the Holy Spirit whereby you know God's will is to prepare and to step out in faith into greater service. And so my job is to, to, to work at being qualified and stay qualified, and God's job is to be able to put me and others into ministry. There are no shortcuts. No shortcuts. A church that pleases God is a church that's willing to send out their own. Verse 3. And when they had fasted, the church leadership fasted and prayed, and the church prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. The church is willing to fast, to pray. They lay hands on them. This is ordination. Now, when they do the ordination, and you've seen it done here, there's no special, magical power that is being transferred to the people that are being ordained, but it is a witness. It is a witness uh, that there is, uh, there is a recognition and that there is uh, an authorization that these men are to be missionaries. One year ago, one year ago, we had an ordination. Uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Anthony, they've served faithfully, on staff for 13 years. Uh, what a joy to be able to see men come up through our teen ministry, singles ministry, and to be able to surrender to serve God full-time. Right now, we have, we have a number of young men, half a dozen young men right now, serving in a half a dozen states, 
uh, a dozen young men in a half a dozen states who grew up or were ordained here serving. I'm going to give you that list. You might be able to pray for them as well. All right, number three, we get to the mission trip, verse 4. So in verse 4, they, uh, uh, they, they departed to Seleucia. That's a seaport town on the Mediterranean. And then they sailed to Cyprus. They sailed to Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Whose hometown is Cyprus? Do you remember? Barnabas. Saul is from Tarsus. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Are you willing to talk to people that you grew up with? Are you willing to talk to your relatives? You know, a good place to start for many people is Facebook. Because it seems that, that dozens and hundreds of people want to connect with people from high school. And for some of you, that's a few decades ago, right? Right? And uh, uh, maybe you were a Christian back then, maybe you weren't. And for those under 40, it might be Instagram, all right? Uh, but you have a social media connection, and that becomes, that becomes a platform for you to let other people know what you believe. And you do it humbly, but you speak the truth in love. So you need to take a look as an independent, objective observer and say, what does my social media footprint look like? Does it identify me as a Christian? Do I put Bible verses on? Do I, put, uh, do I share things about how people can be saved? And so they go to Cyprus. They go to the east side, which is Salamis. And so notice what they did when they got to that first city, and that is verse 5, when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John to their minister. So what did they do? They preached the word of God. This is what missionaries do. They preach the word of God. They preach in the synagogue first. Hey, they picked up an assistant. His name is John Mark, the nephew of Barnabas, or possibly cousin. Colossians 4.10 says, Mark, sister's son to Barnabas, so he's nephew or cousin. And then off to the west side of the island, preaching as they go, verse 6. And when they had gone through the isle, again, preaching town to town, village to village, they come to Paphos, which is on the other side. It is the uh, capital of the Roman government on the island. It's also the center for worship of a false god named Venus. Venus, the famous goddess of love. And according to tradition, Venus was born out of the foam of the sea near Paphos. And she is worshipped in wild, immoral, ungodly ways. The city is a den of iniquity. Notice the leaders in the town. We find two that are given to us in verse 6. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now remember, Bar means son, son of. So you have uh, the, the name Jesus and son put together. He is a worshiper with demons. He is a worshiper of the occult. Sorcerer comes from the Greek word uh, magos. We get our word magic. When it is positive, it is used of someone who is wise, someone like the magi. When it is negative, it means superstitious and occultic like an astrologer. Notice the second man we find, and that is uh, the governor, Sergius Paulus. 
And when he had gone through the island of Paphos, they find Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Bar-Jesus is the sorcerer, and he is going to oppose the word of God. Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, appointed by the Roman Senate, he wants to hear the word of God. Now we get to the spiritual attack, verse 8. Eliamus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Bar-Jesus resisted the mission team. Satan's agents are there to stop the gospel from going out, to interrupt, to disrupt, to oppose. Whenever God wants to give out the word of God, Satan's not going to miss a beat. He's going to be there to see how he can stop it. In fact, Jesus even said, like the birds that come and take away the seed, that's what Satan does. And Satan, Satan has attempted to stop the efforts of Valley Forge Baptist for 37 and a half years, and he has been defeated. The word of God continues to go out strong. The battle lines have been drawn. Our missionaries face satanic attacks as well. His name might be Son of Salvation, but he is not that at all. And so they experience spiritual victory. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. So now... Saul, which is his Jewish name, Paul, which is his Roman name, now he becomes the leader of the missionary team, and he will always be referred to Paul from this point going forward. What does Saul do? He looks him right in the eye, looks him right in the eye, and Paul called it as he saw it. Look at verse 10. Don't you love this? He looks at him filled with the Holy Spirit, so we know that his words are being led by God. And he said, O oh, fool of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. Mischief means wickedness. He did wickedness with ease. Deceit is like a fish hook. How deceitful a fish hook is. So is the occult. Child of the devil. Your name means son of salvation, but you're a son of Satan. Enemy of righteousness. Look at the defeat. Look what happens. Verse 11. Immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking to some to lead him by the hand. Oh, if we could... Return to the good old days, I tell you. That would have been a, a great thing to be able to do, uh, to be able to stop those who are opposing the gospel, just make a little pronouncement, and boom, uh, they go blind. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great today? Well, that's not God's plan today. Uh, we have the Word of God. They didn't have it written yet, but that's exactly what happened. Sergius Paulus is a witness to all of this. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 16? He said, you're going to go, and you're going to preach, and I'm going to confirm you with signs, 
miraculous signs that people will know you're my messenger, messenger, and you're giving my message, and here it is. Here it is, a supernatural element uh, to, to this. God struck him blind. Paul didn't do it. God struck him blind. Now look how souls are saved in verse 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. He didn't have to have the sign to believe, but God provided that for him. Souls are saved. The war is won. Won't you get involved? Won't you pray and won't you give and won't you witness? Won't you love your brothers and sisters that the church of Jesus Christ might be strong? Won't you serve? Now, after every great victory, uh, there's a challenge. And we need to be on guard. We're in the middle of a building program. Do you think Satan is happy with that? Not at all, not at all. And so he's going to look for wiggle room to kind of squeeze in and be able to make someone discontent, make someone upset, make someone distracted or unfocused, but we're in a spiritual battle, and we know that. And if you've been coming on Sunday nights, you know that. We're in a spiritual battle, and yet God is greater And so after this spiritual victory, I didn't read it to you yet, but I'll read it to you now. Look with me at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, John Mark, departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. After every great victory, we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard there's a challenge and here we find the quitter the quitter you know it's one thing to be attacked from the outside the enemy it's another thing to be attacked from the inside and that's what happened on the mission trip here what you have is one of the mission trip leaders you've got paul you've got barnabas you've got john mark there's only three in the team and 33% has now bailed on them. And that's what happened on the first mission trip. We're right in the middle of it. It wasn't all roses. So you have you have uh, you have Barjesus, the sorcerer, attacking them, and now you have one quitting. John Mark bailed on the team, he quit. He had no good reason to quit, and Paul didn't forget it. It wasn't all roses. It's like a stab in the back. Now, why did John Mark quit? Do you know? Well, that was a good answer because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. So we can only surmise the possibilities. Maybe, you remember it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. It's Paul and Barnabas. And so he's thinking, you know, he, this is my relative. This is my relative. Again, he's, he's either the nephew, so that's my uncle or cousin. And, and now he's, he went from being the leader. He's probably older. He's, he's older in the faith. And now he is to be second, second fiddle. And maybe he was upset. 
that, that his relative is now not in charge making the, the final call. Maybe he didn't want to go and reach Gentiles. It's one thing to be in his own home island and where there's Jews and Gentiles, but now they're going to go to Asia Minor. Now they're just going after Gentiles. Maybe he didn't want to reach Gentiles. Maybe he had some of that Jewish pride we talked about uh, back in chapter, uh, chapter 12. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he's homesick. Maybe he heard about the famine and, and he didn't want to experience hardships. He wants to be there to help. Maybe he was afraid of the danger of crossing the Taurus Mountains. I mean, the, the, those mountains had caves, and in those caves are occupied by robbers. Uh, there's the threat of malaria. Uh, the romance of adventure is fast wearing off. He just plain quit? We're not told why, but he quit. And my question to you is, Will you be a quitter? Will you be a quitter? Will you be a washout? Will you turn your back on God? Oh, you, you won't say it, but you'll do it by your actions. Mark did. Mark did. But Barnabas rescued him. Barnabas rescued him. A.T. Robertson wrote... Mark flickered in the crisis, but the light did not go completely out. This is an encouragement to us all. We all have the promise of victory. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What's it going to take to stop you? Oh, well, that pastor said. Oh, that teacher said. Oh, that, 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 uh, that friend looked at me crooked. Oh, I can't believe uh, what they did with that missions money. I don't like the color of the carpet. That's why we had three colors. Everyone could be happy. You could pick one. He quit. And we're going to find the end of Acts chapter 15. Barnabas sees a, a spark of spiritual light in there, and he quit, and he stumbled, and he fell. But Barnabas, he's here to pick him up. He's there to pick them up. And we're going to see one missionary team turn into two missionary teams. Now, the spotlight of Scripture follows the Apostle Paul, but as we keep walking down through the Scriptures, you're going to find a place where the Apostle Paul says, bring Mark, for he is what? Profitable unto me for the ministry. I'm so glad that we have a God of second chances. I'm so glad that when you open your Bible, you got four Gospels and number two, the Gospel according to Mark. Isn't that cool? God knows that we are but flesh. God, remember the, the, the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus needed them the most? They fall asleep. He wakes them up. They fall asleep. He wakes them up, they fall asleep. But he said, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And right now, Jesus Christ is your intercessor. Right now, Jesus Christ is your advocate. There is nothing, there is no good reason to ever quit. And you and I, no family and friends, 
and former church members, and right now, they're not in church, and they're not pleasing God. They quit. They quit. Don't quit. Stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to God's word. Stay faithful to God's house. Stay faithful to God's service because we're going to give an account before him one day. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He's only going to say that to Christians who do something and who do it well. May we pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this first mission trip and the blessing that you bring to, to our hearts from watching Paul and Barnabas lead people to you, starting churches, seeing people baptized and growing in the faith. And we thank you for that example. We thank you that we're not left alone to wonder what is missions. You've given it to us clearly. We know that the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. So God, help us to understand that we're a part of your great work and that over 200 missionaries are counting on us to be faithful, faithful in prayer, faithful in giving, faithful in encouragement, faithful in support. So God, help us never to lose sight of the great work that we get to be a part of. Now, Lord, tonight, if there has been a distraction of disobedience, of lack of faith, of discontent, of complaining, God, would you, by the Spirit of, of God, reach down and, and pluck it out of our heart. Give us forgiving spirits, loving spirits. Help us to be quick to do good, to bless others, to share the gospel. Take just a moment tonight. Would you thank God for the safety we have? Had we been born in Ukraine, we would be in such a terrible strait tonight. And God has put us here. But out of that gratitude, may we give out of our abundance to help those in great need. Lord, thank you for your great love and power to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.